0: So it's, a, it's an incredible privilege to be up here preaching. Um, Steve made the joke this morning, when we were praying, um, you know, we've given this passage to Dave on the plays because we didn't want to preach it. <laughs> and ironically enough, when I was when I found out I was going to be preaching through this series, this was a passage that I actually wanted to preach on, so it's worked out. Uh, you don't get to do it, and I have to do it. So. <laughs> but what, what have we been looking at the last few weeks? So, when we sat down as a group and tried to figure out, you know, what exactly is the theme, the message of this passage, how do we condense that down? One of the things we focused on was the title. And it's like, how do you condense an entire book into three words? And we came up with these words into his glory, into God's glory. And it's a story, it's a journey, it's a journey of the Israelites. It's a journey of Moses stepping into this function of leadership. It's a journey of the Israelites being redeemed and taken out of Egypt and into a promised land. It's a story of not just Israel, but also Moses. It's this very personal story. It's about deliverance, and it's about redemption, and it's about this process of getting refined, how God works on his people throughout the course of time. It's a story of God coming back to dwell with his people, something that we haven't seen since... The book of Genesis when he was with Adam and Eve. We don't see God come back until now. And I've honestly been camped out in this passage for months. And I've had a lot of people ask me, what are you, what are you looking at in the Bible? And it's like, seriously, still in Exodus? It's like, uh, and I felt like I haven't had the privilege or the permission to get out of it. And so it's, yeah, I'm still in it. And all puns intended, I've been camped out in this passage so long. <laughs> God's cloud hasn't yet lifted, so I'm excited to, one, preach this message, but two, move on and and move on into something else. Um, I'm only going to recap quickly because Steve, of James, kind of gave us an extensive recap a couple of weeks ago. Um, Steve, three three weeks ago, preached through Exodus chapter 4, and he made the point, you know, highlighting through the story of Moses um, that in Jesus we can overcome fear. And that fear is of past failure, but it's also a future disappointment. He made the point that we're hidden in Christ. And two of the most important things I think he said is that we never forget the first things, and that's love, and that's obedience. And Jody made that point clear last week as well. Jesus' love language is obedience. James then took us through Exodus chapter 5. Moses attempting to fill this commission, this call that God's put on his life, He experiences these moments. And I imagine kind of a guy in a tweed suit and a pipe and one of those old TV shows. It's like, you know, moments with Moses. Uh, (laughs) But he experiences these moments of momentum and delay and obstacle and opposition. I want to say when Moses obeys, he steps into this um, moment of uh, opportunity. And that's what we're going to kind of look at today. Moses' obedience stepping out and functioning in this, uh, moving into this realm of opportunity. Um, as he obeys what God has said, and there's many obstacles that he's faced up to this point, but he comes ultimately back to God, sees God's heart, is strengthened through God, and God then uses him powerfully as we go through this plague narrative. James ended with this cliffhanger. I'll give my best James accent, but we're about to see God's glory on display. (laughs) It's as good as I can do. But we're about to see this There's this moment where Moses is moving into what God has called him into. And he starts to function in the way that God had ordained from the very beginning, calling him back, helping him to remember who he was in Christ, those, those yearnings that he had when he was in Israel. Even though he did those things in the wrong way, I'm bringing you back, Moses, and you're going to do it my way, and now it's going to work. So I want to look at one key passage. The, the plague narrative is so long. It's chapters 7 through 12. And I figured we can't really touch on everything that's in that. But I think Exodus chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, is a very clear kind of indication of what's going to happen in that narrative. It summarizes it really well, it gives us the, the vision of what God is going to do and what God has promised. So let's just read that quickly. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of this country. God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself fully known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, where they resided as foreigners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians, and I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. So I kind of want to look at two critical questions when we analyze any biblical text, but particularly this one. Number one is, what are we seeing? And potentially, where have we seen it before? And I'll explain that. My wife asked me, well, what's the point of asking what are we seeing? And the point is, if we don't understand what the writer is saying in the context of when he wrote the passage, how are we going to understand it now? We need to understand the context and we get revelation from understanding what God said in that time and it's still relevant and applicable to us but if we miss the historical aspect and the context of the the approach in which it was said then I think we can miss the entire point of what we're looking at. And where have we seen it before? The Bible in some cases sets a very clear precedent in what it's saying and there's no kind of reference to what we're looking at particularly something like the book of Genesis, you see this is very foundational. It's establishing new language. It's looking at how God's character is manifest. But when we when we go through history and when we go through these these texts and these narratives, we can see that it's often moving back and referring back to something that has been spoken over before. And that's what I want to look at in the context of this passage today, is that God is you know, establishing something very clear and it's very foundational, but it also refers back to a lot of what's happened before. And so what are we seeing and where have we seen it before? The second critical question, I think, is where will we see it again and then how does it point to Jesus? Where will we see it again and how does it point to Jesus? Because if we don't understand how the biblical texts are pointing towards Jesus again, we miss the entire entire point of what the scripture writers are trying to capture. So I want to spend some time really camped out in the the uh, kind of pre-plague narrative, and number one, I kind of want to look at the name of God. I think God's establishing His name over again. And I think it's impossible to understand this plague narrative without understanding God's revelation of Himself as Yahweh. He uses that name Yahweh. It comes from four letters. We call it the Tetragrammaton. Or more simply, it's called the four letters. Y-H-W-H. In Hebrew, Yud-Heh-Vav-Heh. Hey. hey. i am sure there's some people here who are going to kill my pronunciation. <laughs> but yud Hey vav Hey, And we, because the Hebrew alphabet doesn't use um, vowels, we really don't understand, we, we don't know how that name was pronounced. Our best guess is that it's Yahweh. But we really don't know. And there's this apparent conflict. You might say to me, well, Dave, he's using this name Yahweh, but we've already seen that used before in Genesis. And I'd say that's a good point. You're reading your Bible well. Thank you. And it's true. This name Yahweh has already been revealed in the book of Exodus. And I don't have time to go into this, but... In in Genesis chapter 1, God is using this name Elohim, and then all of a sudden in chapter 2, he refers to himself as Elohim Yahweh. Why? Why, I think, because it's getting very personal. He's creating man, and he's coming in, and it's not just this cosmic image of God, it's this very personal God, who's both cosmic and getting down onto the level of man, breathing life into him. And that changes. But also, even though we know that, God hasn't revealed his character. You might also say to me, well, Dave, the name Yahweh is already referenced in some of the biblical names that we see. In Joshua, Yahweh is salvation. In the name Joseph, may Yahweh add or give increase. In Moses' mother's own name, Jochebed, Yahweh is glory. And again, I'd say that's a very good point. Clearly, God has revealed his name to the patriarchs, Even though he's revealed himself as God Almighty, El Shaddai, he has not revealed his character to the patriarchs. It's a revelation about God's character because a name reveals his character. Now, I strongly believe that because I believe that God named all of our kids. And I don't have time to go into the nuance of how he named each of our kids. Suffice to say that Nathan and Jonathan and Joanna are names from God that we didn't choose. And it's clearly revealing their character and it's been spot on to date that who they are is who he promised them to be. And that's revealed through their name. And before we even knew them, we knew what they were going to be like. And they continue to be like that. And that gives us great comfort as parents because God has clearly ordained something on their life and promised them something by the revelation of their names. This revelation of God's own name, Yahweh, is inextricably linked with his deeds. We look in in Psalm 103, verse 7, He revealed his character to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. Let me read that again. Psalm 103, verse 7. He, God, revealed his character to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. Now we've seen the revelation of God's name already in Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. I'll read them quickly, I don't think they're behind me. But Moses says to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am, that name Yahweh. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name you shall call me from generation to generation. Now, there's deliberate wordplay that we can miss when we look at it in English, but in the Hebrew, the word I am is eh, yeh. And then God reveals himself in that four letters, yod, hey, vav, hey. I am eh, yeah, versus this name, I am who I am or I will be who I will be. God's using this language to convey something very specific about who he is. It's this name that kind of points to God's eternal existence, his self-sufficiency, his ever-present and function with people, his moving in the realm of human history. It's this name that kind of transcends and fulfills all forms of being, something that we can't fully understand. It's cosmic in scope, and yet it's also very personal. It speaks to God's personal, intentional relationship with both Israel and Moses. And it's this name that reveals the relational nature of his character. God's love of his people. How he intercedes and comes into their history because of his own glory. We can't see this character of God, which God reveals himself as sovereign and supreme through this movement of the plagues through, through Egyptian history. And we can't see him as Savior and Redeemer, or the Israelites certainly can't see him as that, until they go through this Exodus narrative. And that's the point that God's trying to make, is that the patriarchs could never understand my name and the character of my name because I haven't done these things yet. Only what is to come is going to reveal the character that underlines my name. God reveals himself both through this name and through his acts, these acts to execute judgment on Egypt, but not only that, but to deliver his people from slavery and to bring them into the new promise. None of that could be known or seen or felt until it actually happened. Until they experienced this, they didn't see that aspect of God's character. There's importance in this name of God. Y-H-W-H, Yahweh, revealing himself through his character. Secondly, what I want to look at is the covenant. So we've looked at the name. What does the name mean? What does it reveal? What's sitting under that name? What's the character? Secondly, let's look at the covenant, because that's important. If we're going to understand what's being revealed in this passage now, we need to understand what's happened before, and that's the point I'm trying to make, is what is happening, and where have we seen it before? There's this developing concept of the covenant relationship between God and Israel. We see that in verse 4. God's declaration that he is the God of the patriarchs points back to the promises that he gave to Abraham, the fulfillment of these promises. We see God coming, and in in this Exodus narrative, we see God fulfilling the promises that what we would say is in Genesis, but what God has revealed through himself to Abraham. In Genesis 15, Verses 13 through 16. The Lord says to him, Abraham, know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country, not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. Many years before, <laughs> before this has even happened, God has made a statement of fact that your people will be enslaved. Guaranteed. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves. And afterward, they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. And again, in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here. God's made a statement of fact that these guys are going to be enslaved. He's put a number on that, and he's made a promise that they will come out after that period is done. Again, in Genesis 17, verses 3 through 8, God's talking to Abraham again. Before he's renamed him, Abram fell face down and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you the whole land of Canaan where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. We begin to find fulfillment of these promises that are made in Genesis to Abraham in this Exodus passage. God making good on these promises to Moses and the people of Israel. They're Abrahamic promises. They're non-negotiable There's also nothing that Abraham is stipulated to do for these promises to come into being. And we see that as we read the Exodus passage in chapter 1. God's promise that Abraham will become a great nation. In Exodus chapter 1 verse 7 we see the Israelites have become numerous and many and great to the extent that they're being enslaved because the Egyptians are thinking these guys are going to take us over and they're going to become a great nation. They are a great nation and that's the reason they're enslaved. We see that God makes this statement of fact that they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. We see that coming to light in Exodus chapter 1 as well. It's a very succinct summary. Pharaoh's afraid, he enslaves them, and then 400 years later we come back into the story. We see that God promises judgment of these oppressors, of Egypt, and deliverance of the people. And we see that there's a promise, a very clear promise, that God is going to bring them back and return them to the land from which they came, back to Canaan. This is rooted, it's dripping with this covenant language. It's implicit in the entire text, and we need to see that. It's so embedded in their culture and in this passage that when Moses and Aaron come before the elders of Israel, and we can read that in Exodus chapter 4, I won't read that, but such that the elders believe and fall down in worship in front of Moses and Aaron because of what they do and because of what they say. I compare it to kind of, I'm a third, what I call a third generation Estonian. So my grandparents are from Estonia, it's a, a Baltic state, um, Eastern Europe um, my grandfather fought in World War II, my gran- grandmother was a nurse there, and then at the kind of cusp of World War II, and at the, e- the end of that, they fled to Germany and then immigrated to Australia. Um, my mother and her siblings, six of them, were brought up with that, you know, in an Australian culture but with an Estonian tradition. And subsequently, my mum passed that down to me such that Estonian was my first language until I went to school. And it, I remember, I've only recently started thinking about that. No wonder I was confused at school. I didn't even speak the language that I was meant to be speaking. I remember wandering the hallways in confusion and teachers like picking me up, like, what are you doing out here? It's like. But it, it makes a lot of sense now. But I have this foundational understanding of the Estonian culture. Even though I'm third generation and I don't live in Estonia, I've been in Australia my entire life up until I was 21, moved here, and then. But I have enough of that culture embedded in my heart that when I see it, when I smell it, when I hear it, I understand it. I can understand enough of the language that when I hear it, I can pick up on words. It's just not enough that I can outwork. And I think that's similar to what's happening here with the Israelites, is that they've been enslaved for 400 years. And I think we're very naive if we think these guys haven't been impacted by the greatest nation, the greatest culture in the world, and they haven't lost touch with who God is or what he's been doing throughout history. You've got to realize that this culture that the Egyptians are bringing is squashing them and forcing them to do things that they don't want to do, which would include religious culture. And so the foundation of this relationship that God is forging with this people is based on this covenant language with Abraham. And God's reminding him of that. And like I said... They understand it enough, even though they've been removed from it, that when they hear it, when they see it, when they smell it, they get it. We've seen that God promised liberation in Genesis already. And he reiterates this in Exodus as he meets and reveals himself to Moses. So therefore, we shouldn't be surprised when we see what is happening, happening. Does anyone know the difference between suspense and surprise? I'm going to tell you. (laughs) I'm not giving you much chance to answer. Um, Who loves film? Cinema? I'm an avid film buff. Um, Who knows Alfred Hitchcock? Everybody should. I think he's the most famous director in film history, even if you're under twenty one, you should still still know the name. Does anyone know Francois Truffaut? Some? I deliberately looked that up because last time, I know how to pronounce the name, but last time I tried to use a French analogy, James pulled me up on the pronunciation of the name, so I'm busy Googling at work, like listening to how do you pronounce Truffaut. (laughs) So make sure I got it right, otherwise James is going to pull me up after the sermon, tell me that was wrong. You said that the wrong way. (laughs) But Hitchcock and Truffaut are both very famous film directors. Truffaut comes from this new wave of uh, French filmmaking in the late 50s, early 60s, Uh, La Nouvelle Vague is what they call it in French. Courtney can pick me up if that's bad. Um, But Truffaut was probably, arguably, the first director who brought this film, The 400 Blows, um, and that was the launching pad of the French New Wave. And I'm kind of digressing, but it was this reaction to the French bourgeois, kind of attitudes toward filmmaking and culture in general at at that period in time. And these guys come in, um, primarily Truffaut and and Jean-Luc Godard, uh, with the film *Breathless*, these two guys come in and revolutionise cinema, and they brought back into uh, kind of popular culture these directors, including Hitchcock, who were considered really just studio directors, um, and made them, you know, into these auteurs. So, auteur is the French word for, for author, which meant that you know these directors had this indelible stamp on their work; that everything you saw these guys do bore their mark and this was fundamental to this French New Wave, is that these guys were auteurs. They owned their work. They kind of did whatever they want. They broke the rules, and they created these new rules. But Hitchcock and Truffaut had an interview, and in, I think it was 1963. Um, Hitchcock was like, fundamental to the French New Wave. They, they adored the work that he did, and they saw it in this different light, which you know, I think today would you know, is arguably why we would know Hitchcock as well as we do but they have an interview, they're sitting in this room for eight days. And Hitchcock was known as the master of suspense, and Truffaut says to him, well, what's the difference between surprise and suspense? And Hitchcock responds, there's a distinct difference between suspense and surprise, and yet many pictures continually confuse the two. I'll explain what I mean. We are now having a very innocent little chat. Let's suppose that a bomb underneath this table... There is a bomb underneath this table between us. Nothing happens, and then all of a sudden, boom, there's an explosion. The public is surprised, but prior to this surprise, it has seen an absolutely ordinary scene of no special consequence. Now let us take a suspense situation. The bomb is underneath the table, and the public knows it, probably because they have seen the anarchist place it there. The public is aware the bomb is going to explode at 1 o'clock, and there is a clock on the mantelpiece. The public can see that it is a quarter to one. In these conditions, the same innocuous conversation becomes fascinating because the public is participating in the scene. The audience is longing to warn the characters on the screen, you shouldn't be talking about such (laughs) trivial matters. There is a bomb beneath you and it's about to explode. In the first case, we have given the public 15 seconds of surprise at the moment of the explosion. In the second, we have provided them with 15 minutes of suspense. The conclusion is that whenever possible, the public must be informed. And this is what we're seeing here. We shouldn't be surprised at anything that's happening is because God has already revealed it, not only in the chapter preceding in Exodus, but many chapters before and also in the book of Genesis. We can't be surprised by anything that's going to happen because when God says something is going to happen and he ordains it to happen, it will happen, whether it's good or whether it's bad. So we come into point number three. We've looked at the name. We've looked at the covenant. I want to look at the plagues. Here's our 15 minutes of suspense. We know that the Lord has made a covenant with Abraham. We know that the Israelites would be enslaved. We know that God promised delivery and we know that he promised this delivery after an extended period or after an extended series of acts and miracles. So knowing all this, how is it going to play out? So... I want to set the scene, and I realize I'm making a very lengthy and extended introduction to all of this, but it's important to understand, before we launch into this plague narrative, let's set the scene. So Egypt was the most polytheistic nation of the time, which meant they worshipped a myriad of gods, and there was no nationalization of religion until Akhenaten in the 1300s BC tried to bring in this soul worship to the sun god, the Aten, and then was later branded as a heretic, and they go back to that, But there's many gods that they're worshipping, and they're local, and they're seen as regional, and each god is known by an individual name with a distinct meaning and character. Central to Egyptian theology was this concept of ma'at, which meant, we don't have one word for it in English, but it's truth and justice and order, where all the forces of nature which were personified by the gods had to function in balance. And ma'at was under this constant attack, this disorder that threatened to remove all the order that existed in Egyptian religious culture and society. And Pharaoh, as the intermediary or the mediator, as recognized as a god on earth, acts as a mediator. He is the key to upholding ma'at on the earth. And he plays a pivotal role in sustaining this truth, this justice, this order. Does it sound familiar? The Egyptian gods were known by individual names with a distinct meaning and character. When we look in a mirror, let's mirror image that to God. We see God as God, as Yahweh, with a distinct name that has a distinct meaning and has a distinct character. We see that Pharaoh is the key to upholding this this order of truth and justice and peace. Where do we see that when we look in the mirror? We see that as Moses, as the reflection of Pharaoh. And God's very clear, and he says to Moses, you will be as a god before Pharaoh. Moses isn't claiming to be God, but God is interjecting himself into Egyptian society and saying, you will be a god before Pharaoh, as Pharaoh is an God and a mediator and an intermediary for his people so will you be for mine we already spoke about the Israelites have been in Egypt 400 years we I don't think we can make the assumption that they weren't influenced by the culture, by the religion by the dress when we look back we can see that Joseph already even though he loves and believes in God is already using a diviner's cup Has been influenced by Egyptian culture. And I think throughout the course of 400 years, we have to say that these guys are practicing in some sort of mix of religious culture between Yahweh and between the Egyptian gods. My wife Jackie went to India in April. And one of the stories she came back with, she met many people, but there's an old lady that she met. And this lady has a story where, taking it back a step, a lot of the people who believe in Jesus in India go through this step-by-step process to get to Jesus as the one and only revelation of who God is, as his son, as the only God. What, What you'll see is often that they have posters of all their gods and then a picture of Jesus sitting in between it. Jesus is not central to their religion, but because of the fear that they have in their culture, it's like, I've got to accept him as well. I'll put him in amongst everyone else. And if I believe in enough, then maybe I'll be fine in the end. And this lady, she's 70 years old, something like that. Um, you know, she was a work in progress. And then one day she comes into the church. And she's like, Jesus has healed my friend. My friend was sick and now she's well. And our friend who lives out in Calcutta there said to her, how do you know it was Jesus. She said, well, all these years I've been praying to all these gods and nothing has ever happened. And this time I prayed to Jesus and Jesus healed her. She had this revelation that Jesus was the one God. It took many years. And I think this is the process that we see for the Israelites is that there was many gods. And it took God coming in and revealing himself through this you know, covenant promise with Abraham that they turn back and say, God is the one true God. Now we will believe. But back to this name again, and I don't want to keep harping on it, but when Moses asks, it's not a philosophical question. It's a question that's rooted in deep practicality. Who are you? What are you? What is your character? Because it's not just a question of God establishing himself amongst the Israelites. It's this, question of, it's this theory of God establishing himself nationally in amongst the greatest nation of the time. God's not a regional God. God's not a national God. He is an international God and he's establishing himself here in this, in this narrative. Because the plan isn't just to liberate the Israelites. But it's Yahweh coming in, establishing his sovereignty and his superiority by this direct attack on Egypt, Egypt's gods. And we can say, well, we know that Egypt's gods don't exist. They didn't know that. And God makes it very clear in the narrative. We can look at Exodus 12 and Numbers 33. I will judge their gods. It's God establishing this sovereignty, this superiority over the Egyptian gods saying, I am the one true God and I will decimate and I will bring into destruction everything that you guys know and, and understand as fundamental to this concept of truth, order and peace that you know. This concept of my art. Not only am I going to you know, be destructive towards your gods, I'm, I'm destroying the entire theology that you hold dear. This fundamental theology that you know. I want to take some time to look at numerology because I, we, we need to understand and we can miss something very significant if we don't look at the importance of uh, Exodus not just as a historical narrative but a, as a piece of art and literature and poetry. And when we see the patterns that exist, it gives credibility and it gives understanding to what is going on. It's not just history, guys. This is art. This is God bringing truth through literature, through this story. And that's not to take anything away from the historicity of what Exodus is. It's a narrative account of what happens to the Israelites and how God establishes them. But it's also done in a very beautiful and a very poetic way. There's four numbers that were kind of fundamental to Israelite culture at the time. You had three, seven, ten, and twelve. Three of those we see here. The number three. Three is a picture of completeness. And there are nine plagues before the Passover, before God taking the firstborn. And they're divided into clear patterns of three. Three and three and three. And we can see that because in the first two, In each group of three, the first two plagues are announced beforehand. Pharaoh is given an opportunity to understand and to see what's going on, and in the last one, he's given no warning. It just happens, and we see that happen three times over. It's divided one, two, and three, blood, frogs, and gnats. And in that, we see a clear depiction of the magician's Versus Moses. Number 4, 5, and 6, we see flies, the death of the livestock, and boils. Here, we see a distinction between Egypt and Israel because God is separating them. All these things that happen to the Egyptians in these next three plagues do not happen to the Israelite people. In plagues 7, 8, and 9, we have hail and locusts and darkness. Now, at this point, the priests and the magicians have gone, and I'll explain that soon. And there's a continued distinction between Egypt and Israel. God is separating them. They're not affected by these plagues. All God's wrath and all God's fire is falling down only on the Egyptian people. We see number seven. The seventh plague, is, I, I'm still not sure I understand this one fully, but there's a, seven is a picture of completeness and perfection. And it, it reference, it's in reference to God's creation account where he created the earth in six days and on the seventh he rested. And it's fundamental. The seventh plague is one of hail. And God says, this plague will be the full force of my fury. And I don't know why, but it is. It says it's there. This is the full force of God's plague against Egypt. And when we look at the Hebrew language, we can see the NIV doesn't translate it very well. It says there's hail and there's lightning. But other translations, the ESV, King James... Everything else says that there's hail and fire. And why is that fundamental? Because the Hebrew language uses polar opposites to describe something that reflects totality in nature. It reflects Yahweh's all-encompassing power. So when you have hail, which is ice and fire, and they're intermingling and they're, they're coexisting in this one storm, it's reflective of God's power. His totality, his complete power over Egypt and their gods. And number 10, there's 10 plagues. 10 represents fullness of quantity and completeness, and there's this element of perfection. So I asked the question before, how is this going to play out? Here's how it's going to play out. The 10 plagues, the number 10, if 10 is representative of fullness of quantity and completeness and perfection, then what are the plagues? The plagues are the fullness of God's expression of justice and judgment. As the Ten Commandments were symbolic of the fullness of the moral law of God. The Ten Plagues, therefore, represent the plagues being completely plagued. And completely plagued is this play on ma'at. God's not only bringing these ten individual plagues, but he's doing it in such a way that he's taking away this core tenet, this fundamental theology of Ma'at, of truth and justice and order. He's completely plaguing the Egyptians. But let's look quickly at what these plagues are and what's happening. First, we have the water to blood. Now, the Nile was the life source of Egypt. That's unquestionable. And it's one of the main reasons why Egypt was so successful as a superpower at the time. There was an annual flooding of the Nile, which gave life and brought refreshment and birth and growth to Egyptian culture. So when God is attacking the Nile and he turns the water to blood and it becomes this stinking, horrible mess and things cannot live in it any longer, then God's saying, the life source that brings so much growth to Egypt, I'm going to destroy that. And in doing so, I'm going to attack, I'm going to attack Harpi the god of the Nile. And I'm going to show my superiority over Harpi, the god of the Nile. This is no longer going to be a life source for you. It's going to be representative of death. In the second plague, we see the plague of frogs. Now, frogs are a symbol of fertility to the Egyptians. They represented water and renewal, And they represented birth and new life. And because of that, they're then considered sacred in Egyptian culture. Now what God is doing here, we see in the Exodus account that God says these frogs are going to come up. He very clearly says they're going to be in your bedroom and on your beds. He's attacking this fertility in the Egyptian culture. I'm going to take what's very personal and sacred and intimate with you and I'm going to overrun it with this symbol of fertility. And it's going to annoy you and it's going to, you're going to want to kill these things. They're going to be so intense that something that you saw as a symbol of life is no longer a symbol of life for you. And in doing so, God's attacking Hecate, the goddess of fertility who's represented with the image of a frog. And in the end we see When God takes the plague away, there's this heap of stinking frogs that are sitting outside the Egyptian cities. And what they saw as something that was good and pure and fertile and something symbolic of life becomes this symbol of death that just sits out there outside of the cities and rots. The third plague is the plague of gnats from dust. I don't have too much info on this one except for the fact that God is attacking Geb, the god of the earth taking this symbol of dust, he's turning into this pestilence which is going to overrun the Egyptian crops. The fourth plague is the plague of flies and that, that, that word flies is very kind of loose. And so more likely scholars think that this is representative of beetles. And Kepri, the god of creation and rebirth, is represented by this image of a beetle, of a scarab, of a, of a dung beetle. Now the Egyptians thought that life you know these were symbolic because the beetles used to lay their eggs in the dung they'd roll them in this little ball and that journey of the ball rolling across would be symbolic of the sun's journey but also they'd lay their eggs in this dung and then when the babies were born they'd appear and they thought like just magically they'd appear out of this dung and so these beetles are a symbol of rebirth And God's attacking Kepri, whose name is he who is coming into being. Plague number five is the death of the livestock. And Hathor is the goddess of love and protection who is represented by this image of a cow, the face of a cow. Plague number six is where we see the ashes to boils. So Moses scatters these ashes in the air, it becomes this you know, festering sores all over the Egyptians. Now, this is a, we kind of see this hierarchy of how God is attacking the Egyptian gods. So we kind of start with the lower-level ones, and then as we move up, we're, we're now hitting Isis, and then we go to Osiris, and then we go to Ra, who are the three main gods in Egyptian culture. So as we go through these plagues, it's important to see that God is getting higher up on the Egyptian scale, and he's attacking the most important gods of their culture. Now, at this point, the priests and magicians have disappeared. They've been able to replicate two of these miracles. The third one they acknowledge is the finger of God. And then they kind of wander in and out of the narrative. But then in in number six, they're gone. They're never heard from again. And why is that? Well, the Egyptian culture um, kind of found ritual cleanliness very important, as did the Israelite culture. But this concept of serving in the temples, of being a priest, required that the priest be ritually clean. And because these magicians are functioning in this function of priesthood, when they're infected with boils and sores, they can no longer stand before Pharaoh, because Pharaoh is considered a god on earth. And they can't serve in the temples anymore, because they're ritually unclean. And it's the same for Pharaoh. Pharaoh can no longer act as an intermediary, as a mediator, on behalf of his people, because he is now ritually unclean. God is taking these guys out of the picture, saying, I've I've entirely wiped out the way that you can interact with your gods now. I'm taking away your religion. I'm taking away the God of the earth. God on earth, as you know him, as Pharaoh, can now no longer maintain ma'at, truth, justice, and order because he is not clean enough to stand before the gods. God's ruined their entire religious function the system in which they operate in. Plague number seven is the hail, which we already kind of talked about, but this is the full fury of, of God's wrath. And this is attacking Nut, the goddess of the sky, Set, the god of storms, and Osiris, who's one of the three major gods in Egyptian culture, who's associated with the gift of barley. Now, this hail doesn't necessarily wipe out all the crops. We see that in the text God wipes out their flax and their barley. Barley was used to make beer at that time and flax was used to make their linen. So he's wiped out not the, the primary commodities that they had at the time but things that they were using for clothing and beer like luxury commodities. He's wiped out their luxuries. They still have enough food to eat at, that, at this point. But Osiris was, was um, associated with this gift of barley and so God is attacking Osiris. Is wiping out good things that the Egyptians enjoy. Not fundamental things. And so in plague number eight, which is the plague of locusts, God is attacking Set, the god of storms and disorder, and Osiris, the god of crops. The locusts now wipe out everything else that's left. So you've got to assume that there's a small period of time where these crops are allowed to grow enough where God can then wipe them out. God's now taken out their luxury goods, now he takes out their fundamental commodities. You can no longer have fun, and now you can no longer eat. And plague number nine, it's this plague of darkness, this deep darkness, and God is attacking Ra, the sun god, the most worshipped god in Egypt. There's three days of darkness. There's a complete absence of light and hope. This is representative of death and judgment and hopelessness. And this goes back to my point before. What are we seeing? Where have we seen it before and where will we see it again? This three days of darkness, this complete absence of light and hope, where do we see that again? We see that on the death of the cross. Three days of complete and utter despair until we understand what comes next. And then in plague number 10, the death of the firstborn, God is attacking Pharaoh as the son of Ra, the incarnation of gods on earth. This is a direct attack on Pharaoh's sovereignty, on his kingship, on anything that he holds dear. And when we look at all that context, what's happening in the text, what is God doing? We get to the second question, where will we see it again and or how does it point to Jesus? Now this plague of death, this death of the firstborn, culminates in the Passover. And in the Passover God's instituting something that the Israelites need to do to be saved. And he makes it very clear that this is the beginning of a new life. This ritual that they're going to perform is symbolic of new beginnings. It's the first day of the new month, of the new year. This is to be for you a new period of time. Nothing was required from the Israelites prior to that. When God made a distinguishment between Egypt and Israel, he just did it. Now he's asking them to do something very clear. This is a lasting ordinance, a ritual that the Israelites are to remember forever. That's one of two that God makes clear, I want you to remember time immemorial. One is remember my name, Yahweh. The other is to remember the Passover. Celebrate the Passover. And when they celebrate it, there's a very specific purpose and then it becomes a memorial. We remember what God did. The Passover couldn't exist before that because God hadn't done what he said he was going to do. Now this, to me, reflects the importance of the name of God, but also the blood. And when I talk about the blood, what am I talking about? I think too often we can maybe skim over what the blood actually means. Maybe some of us don't know what it means. But the Israelites are required to take a perfect lamb, to sacrifice that, to take its blood and then to paint it over the door as a symbol of faith that God will see them and pass over them in this plague of death. The lamb's blood isn't for God's benefit because we've already seen that he didn't need anything to distinguish the Israelites from the Egyptians. This is an act of faith of the Israelites. It's testing them are you listening to me, guys? Do you believe that I can do what I say I'm going to do? It's a test of their obedience. I've given you a clear mandate. I've asked you to paint the blood over the door. Will you do what I've asked you to do? And that's where we get this this phrase, under the blood of the Lamb. If we didn't understand it before, it goes back to this Exodus narrative. Under the blood, symbolic of blood, physical blood being painted on a doorway, and we are saved, the Israelites were saved By doing that action. There's nothing fundamental in painting blood over a door. But it was what God asked them to do. God's distinguishing the firstborn. He's not just saving Israel's firstborn sons, even though that's important. He's saving Israel herself as his own firstborn. We see that in Exodus chapter 4. God says, then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son, and I told you, let my son go, so that he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. Saving the generations, but he's also saving Israel as a nation. He's committed to Israel as his firstborn. And so it's not just making a distinction between the Egyptian sons and the Israelite sons. It's making this covenant foundation with Israel as my people, and I claim them, I adopt them as a son. They are my sons, and I will protect them. And Pharaoh, if you attack my son, you can expect the full force of my wrath. He's promised it here already. And we see it come into play. The lamb takes the place of Israel's sons. It's this element of substitutionary sacrifice. Now, sacrifice wasn't something new. It existed in the cultures of the, of the Middle Eastern region for many years. But the emphasis has never been on the saving power of the blood. It's always been on this animal as an appeasement to the gods. If we give you this, and then you might be good to us. But now God's saying, that's not what it's about. This sacrifice is symbolic of how I'm going to save you. It's representative, and we need to understand that it's of something, it's a foreshadow of what is to come. The power of the blood hasn't been emphasized as strongly as it has now. And so when we fast forward 1500 years and we see John the Baptist standing on the shore of the Jordan River and he calls out, Look! The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's a very prophetic and loaded statement. I don't know that I'd be happy if I was Jesus and somebody's calling that out on me. This man is going to die in your place, his blood is what's going to save you. And it harkens back to this Exodus narrative in what God has said to Moses about Pharaoh and the Passover. Now, the ironic thing is that Jesus is both the Lamb and the firstborn. How can that happen? Colossians says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And further in verse 19, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. This entire story is pointing towards Jesus. This element of substitutionary blood is pointing towards Jesus the entire time. And similarly, as the patriarchs couldn't know the name of God until his character was revealed, the Israelites couldn't know the saving power of the blood until we go forward in time and we see that coming to fruition in Jesus as the Lamb of God. The Israelites walk into freedom under the blood of the Lamb, and so do we. It's fundamental to our faith. Now, we could have stopped the story if if this wasn't about the redemption of Israel. We didn't even need... All we needed was a quick summary of the plagues. God decimated Egypt, and the Israelites walk out in freedom. As we said before, this is a story of into his glory. Why? Because God is redeeming his people. God is refining them. They're on a journey, as are we. It never stops. We're on a journey into knowing more about God, knowing who he is, the saving power of what he's done, and that journey won't stop. It doesn't stop when the Israelites reach Canaan. We see that through history. So when we look at these things, I liken it to a spiral. It's like we're working through the, through the Bible, through the gospel, through the Gospel into this Jesus in the middle and we start with Adam and Eve and we go through, through Noah, through, <clears throat> through the patriarchs, through to Joseph, through to Moses. We come through to Joshua, getting confused, to the judges, to the priests, to the kings, particularly David and Solomon, to the prophets and finally we work into Jesus. And I think we have clear clear evidence of that on the road to Emmaus when Jesus is talking to the disciples. He hasn't revealed himself, but he expounds everything about himself, starting at Moses and the prophets. He points to everything in scripture about himself. And so we move slowly in this spiral into Jesus. Jesus at the center of every narrative, of every story in the Bible. And then we've got to think about how does that apply to us today? We've got to outwork that. The spiral then goes in reverse. We start at Jesus in the center and we work out over time and then we get to me and you. How does that affect me and you? The story of Jesus over history, over the course of time, through revelation, even though we've closed the Bible on what we we say is canonical scripture, the story doesn't stop. God is still at work. We still have testimony. We still have power. God is still at work. So I'd like to finish and have us thinking, and I don't want to be corny or trite, but what is your Egypt? We've touched on that this morning. We are, some of us are probably feeling oppressed. Some of us are probably feeling that we're under bondage. Some of us are probably feeling accused by people or things who or what is your Egypt? Who is oppressing you? What has you under bondage? What are you in conflict about? Let's be released from fear. Steve has already said the fear of past failure and the fear of what is to come in the future because we don't think God can act. Let's be confident that God acted throughout history. He continues to act. It didn't just culminated Jesus, although that is the culmination of everything, it's a story that goes on because Jesus has done it all. He died on the cross, he was brought back to life in glory, and he sits at the right hand of God as an intermediary on our behalf. And again, that's another image that we can pick up on where Moses as an intermediary is a foreshadow, a foretaste of who Jesus will be for us forever. We're going to lead into a period of communion and I figured it was not right if we talk about the importance of the blood and the Passover and how significant that is in Jesus' own life if we don't break bread and, and drink together. James is going to take some time and lead us in that.